Good morning. This is Brian Wickert on WDRT Community Radio in Verroqua, Wisconsin, with the program Conversations. And today, I've invited in Peter Allen to talk about his farming practices. So good morning, Peter. Good morning, Brian. How's it going today? Uh, it's a beautiful day. Glad spring is coming. Yes. So tell me a little bit about the name of your farm and how you chose the name and what... Well, first tell me the name of your farm. Let's do that. Mastodon Valley Farm. And why did you choose that name? Well, it's a little bit of a long story, but um, basically... Uh, our mission is to restore um, oak savanna e ecosystems that were here for the last 8,000 years or so since the last ice age and then before that for millions of years. Um, and it was the mastodon for millions of years that maintained that ecosystem type uh, kind of as a keystone species. And that ecosystem uh, is oak savanna, which is basically scattered oak trees also could be hickory walnut just scattered trees but the the key is its continuous cover of grass so it's like a prairie uh, grassland with scattered trees and the grassland supports the herbivores the trees produce fruit and nuts which also feeds animals and uh, it's one of the most productive ecosystems that we can even have in north america um, and so i kind of look at the mastodon as a a mascot as a uh, what we're trying to accomplish, it signifies. Now you said it was a main player or something in it. Why the Mastodon? What would he do? Would he tromp stuff so, down? So here in the eastern United, east of the Mississippi River, uh, we have a lot of humidity, a lot of rain, and we grow forests rapidly. So if you take a piece of land and you let it go 20, 30 years, uh, you're going to have, you're going to be on your way to a continuous canopy forest. So in ecology, that's what we'd call a climax community. If you if you don't do anything to the land um, and you have a bare piece of ground, in 30 years, you're going to have a forest or, or close to a forest. In 50 years, you for sure have a forest. We get a lot of rain. Trees grow really fast. And so if you don't want to have a forest, the thing is we didn't have forests here. When, when the first Europeans arrived, this was a grassland savanna uh, full of game and full of wildlife. Close canopy forests don't have that much wildlife. They don't have that much diversity. Um, they don't have that much productivity versus a grassland with scattered trees. And so when the first Europeans arrived here, it, it wasn't a closed canopy forest, which is a little bit of a paradox because you would assume, well, it was natural before Europeans arrived. Well, the thing is there were Native Americans here um, and they were through their activities of burning, hunting and horticulture, they were creating savannas because they're the ultimate um, food producing ecosystem. So buffalo, deer, all the stuff that they ate produced better in a savanna than in a forest. Much, much, much better. I mean, bison are herbivores. They eat grass. They're grazers. So they can't live in forests. They need grass. Um, so you need grasslands. And the only way to have grasslands with all of this humidity that we have in the eastern United States is with heavy disturbance. So Native Americans primarily used burning and fire to create that disturbance to keep the grasslands here, to, 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 to hold back the forests. All right. And before the Native Americans, it was the mastodons, and they are browsers. They eat trees. So they would come in, and they were loggers. They, they cut down. They knocked down trees. They ate them, stripped the brush. 
um, knocked trees over, creating patches that allowed sunlight in for the grass to grow. And then they would be followed by the camels and the horses and the elk and the the larger herbivores that also ate grass in addition to browse. All right. So I'm going to step back here for a second. Where's your farm and how did you end up here in Vernon County? So we're actually about a mile into Richland County. So we're in Richland County on that side of the, uh, of the Kickapoo. Um, so we're right outside of Viola, mm-hmm. um, right on the Kickapoo. We're actually right on Camp Creek, right before Camp Creek goes into the Kickapoo River. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've been here for about 10 years. I came, before we, we were at the farm, I was uh, in graduate school at UW-Madison studying ecology. And I was specifically studying how to restore um, oak savanna ecologies. And in the university, it's, it's tricky because we have this ethic of wanting to restore what was here before, but we also have this ethic that humans are bad and we should allow nature, we should allow nature to take its, uh, to go its own way. So we need to create preserves. Um, and when you take a piece of land and preserve it and keep people out, it, it doesn't turn into the kinds of ecosystems that were here before. And so a lot of the restoration attempts through a lot of the academic work um, don't succeed because they come in, they identify what they think of as invasive species, they remove those species, they may plant some native species and then they walk away. And 10 years later, it's right back to where you started from and you've got to come back in with hand-to-hand combat and chemical warfare in order to try to restore this native plant community. And what I realized through the university was that if you don't restore the ecosystem processes that maintained the ecosystem in that state, whether it was a grassland, a prairie, or savanna, um, you're just gardening with plants, removing invasives, planting natives. But if you don't change the context of the ecological processes happening in that place, um, you're not going to make any progress on doing actual ecosystem restoration. You might restore a plant community, but you're not going to restore an ecosystem. So an ecosystem needs um, disturbance. It needs whether that's herbivory or fire. Um, And so I kind of realized in the university that that was not a route that I saw that had potential for large-scale landscape restoration. When you were at the university, was that common that they thought that, you know, man, if you could just put it take away man and put it back to natural that'd be better was that yes that's the that's a unspoken um assumption okay so you were going against the grain yes okay so what was your experience when you would have these ideas and you discuss them with people would you have good discussions or were you kind of silenced i didn't make a lot of progress <laughs> I, I worked um both at the UW Arboretum, uh, which is about 1,500 acres right in the middle of Madison, um, started by Aldo Leopold. Really cool story of how it started and Mm -hmm. very um, uh, laudable uh, intent. And it it, it was meant to to showcase what Wisconsin was like before the Europeans came. And he, Leopold actually wanted to have Native Americans be a part of the, there there used to be a a village, uh, a Ho-Chunk village right on uh, Lake Wingra up in pretty, pretty up till pretty recently, uh, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, he wanted that to be part of it, but the university was like, no, 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 this has got to be for science. This is just nature. Um, and a lot of the restoration attempts 
I don't want to be too critical, but they don't, they're not super successful uh, in the long run. They, they do, it takes a lot of effort. It's, it's expensive. You pay people, you, you spray chemicals, uh, and you know, 10, 15 years later, it's kind of right back where you started. So if I'd say they, they have a picture of what they wanted, and if nature wasn't cooperative, they would go after nature to make it look what they wanted? Correct. The, you know, the, the way I think about it is, you know, they're, they're very plant-centric. So they've got these lists of plants that are not okay. They're considered exotic or invasive, and then plants that are desirable. And so you're just kind of constantly fighting to increase the number of plants on the, the good guy list and decrease the number of plants on the bad guy list. The thing is, nature doesn't care about your list. <laughs> good. So it was kind of Sisyphus type task that they're engaged in. So, they, all right. so uh, where did you do your undergrad? Undergraduate was at Indi Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana. So where did you grow up? Uh, I moved around a lot uh, in the South and the Midwest. Okay, so how did you end up? I, I grew up in Indiana, so oh. I went to Purdue, so oh. IU was always the, the other university. Bad. That's I know, too bad. That's too bad. That's what they said. <laughs> so what was what did you study at IU? Because if you're in agriculture school was Purdue, yes. IU was the more of the I studied, arts. Yeah, I studied ecology. So I, I, I got a, a bachelor's of science in environmental science with a focus in ecosystem science. At IU? At IU, yes. And Purdue would be a big ag school, so it'd be a corporate ag. They probably wouldn't have much interest in that. Right, exactly. Right. So, and I wasn't interested in agriculture at all. I mean, to me, uh, and basically the entire time I was in the academy, uh, agriculture was the enemy. They were the bad guys. Um, they're the ones destroying the land. Um, and it was not until the very end of my PhD <laughs> research, researching oak savannas, and, and seeing basically that the Native Americans were practicing a form of agriculture, that the oak savanna was the result of a form of agriculture practice that the Europeans, when they came, didn't recognize as agriculture. They thought it was wilderness. You know, this idea sure. that Native Americans were just, you know, hunter-gatherers in this wilderness, uh, when in fact uh, their actions created entirely an entirely different continent than what would have been here without them. Um, so the continent that we encountered had been shaped by Native Americans from from the Atlantic to the Pacific, all the way across. When you said that agriculture was the enemy, I'm just laughing because people listen to this show. It's you know we're all created to agriculture, and you called us the enemy. So let's go back a little bit about that. When you had this epiphany that you could farm naturally, tell us a little bit about that story. But you started out with agriculture, and I mean row crop conventional chemical agriculture is that would you be would be agriculture would yeah when i said that you know in 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 ecology we would think of agriculture as the enemy we're talking about monoculture industrial agriculture okay. um and so for me it was realizing that the native that the native americans basically were farming these oak savannas. Mm -hmm. And so the, I kind of realized that if, we're, if we want to restore these ecosystems, and there's many, many reasons to do so, they, they build soil, they clean the water, they have the highest biodiversity of any ecosystem type in North America. They also have the most productivity. They produce the most food, uh, food for nature, but food for humans. So there's many, many reasons to restore these systems. And so I realized that the Native American, the reason they were here was because Native Americans were using them in a, as a form of agriculture that, and also seeing this sort of impotence of 
the sort of academic approach to restoration. That, that's, this is not something that can scale. Uh, and seeing the need for um, large-scale landscape restoration, the, the, the degradation that's happened, uh, largely due to conventional agriculture. Okay, now with degradation, I'm imagining you mean soil erosion? Loss of topsoil, pollution, um, way too much nitrogen in the soils and in the um, waterways, phosphorus overloading of the streams and riparian areas, um, polluted groundwaters. Okay, so that's that's the degradation. And I think we've been doing really conventional agriculture since just before World War II. And I think of the results from a objective point of view, probably not the best way to keep going. No. And stuff. So. You're in grad. You're in undergrad. You go to grad school. Did you go that at uh, Madison? That was at Madison. So yeah. you got your master's and your PhD at Madison. In Madison. So when you went there, did you teach classes then? As a yes, I taught the whole time. <laughs> so what was that like in front of students? What kind of conversations would you have? Oh, it was great. That was one of my favorite things about about being in the university was teaching, or teaching ecology classes, getting students excited about being outside and, and about nature and what was happening outside. Well, usually you have a academic track where you get your PhD, become a teacher, then you get your tenure and that's kind of the goal. Yeah. What happened to you? Well, basically I was about a year away from finishing the PhD and um, I had this realization of what I wanted to do and mm -hmm. that, that if we wanted to to restore you know, large-scale landscapes. It, had to, it was going to have to be done. There had to be some kind of economic benefit to it if it's mm -hmm. actually going to scale. And so I kind of figured that if I basically, part of my dissertation was drawing up a model for a farm based on how the oak savannas, the structure and the function of oak savanna ecosystems. Um, and so... I went to my advisor and talked to him about it. And he's like, well, is this what you want to do? You want to start a farm like this? And I'm like, well, a lot of, a lot of academics and professors that are in the world of sort of critiquing agriculture, mm -hmm. write lots of papers and books telling farmers how they should farm. Like, oh, would it, the world would be better if farmers did this instead of this, right? Well, but it, but how much does that change the needle? How many farmers are sitting there reading your, uh, you know, ecology journal article and saying, oh, maybe I should follow this guy's advice who's right. never farmed before in his life. And never made any money at it. Right. It's a and so my feeling was that if this idea was going to work, you know, if then I, I needed to try it to see if it was going to work before I could write and tell other people they should do it. Uh-oh, speak out of your experience. That's pretty good. Right. That's that was kind of my feeling. And so I told my I probably shouldn't have told my advisor this, but I told him that. And he said, well, what do you need a Ph.D. for? <laughs> and I said, well, that's a pretty good point. I, I don't actually have an answer for that, because up until that point, I'd been thinking, well, I'll be a professor. Right. So that's right. what I was going to do. I really enjoyed teaching. Um, but uh, at that point, I realized it probably didn't make sense. And uh, it was right at that point that we got the opportunity to, to purchase land that I wasn't expecting. It kind of came out of the blue. And it was one of those situations where I either jumped on it and took it or said no and, and stayed and finished my PhD. And so I, I jumped on the land and I didn't finish my PhD. Well, congratulations. That's a good, that's a good move <laughs> as far as mine concerned. I haven't, I haven't regretted it. No. I've, uh, 
friend Parker Forsell, he was at Iowa getting his PhD in sustainable ag 10, 15 years ago, and he got the same way, got halfway through and says, I'm not going to make a big difference if I stay in the university. Yeah. But if I go out and do it, then it's going to matter. Yeah. And he dropped out too, so congratulations on your courage to change. Yeah, that was it was not an easy decision, and it's something that I... It, a lot of, I feel like a lot of people, a lot of young people coming out of college go to graduate school because they want to do something good for the world. <clears throat> and a lot of this really positive energy gets kind of squashed mm-hmm. um, and isn't allowed to manifest. And that's, that's right. unfortunate. So how long have you been on your farm now? 10 years. 10 years. And you're married? Yes. Married so, and three kids. Okay. What are the children's names? Tilia, Elijah, and Noah. And at what ages? Eight. Well, Tilly will be eight in a, in a couple weeks. Elijah is four and Noah is one. And your wife's name? Maureen. Maureen. So that's got to be an absolute wonderful lifestyle for those children. That's one of the reasons we're doing it the way we're doing it. When we started, you know, basically, if, if you're going to buy land out here or basically anywhere, you can buy a little bit of land with, you know, with the same amount of money. You can buy a little bit of land with a house and buildings, or you can buy a lot of land that There's doesn't nothing. have anything. And we chose the latter option, which ended up coming with its whole host of challenges along the way. But we mm-hmm. bought 100 acres of vacant land and, um, and we've been roughing it basically ever since then. We're almost in our finished final house. <laughs> I, I just put in... Co- countertops and I'm finishing out the kitchen this week and hopefully we'll be in in the next couple months. That's that's a very common story. Most people don't have the patience or courage to to finish it out because it's easier just to go the other way. Yeah, we've Are, thought about it many times. <laughs> <laughs> Brings you closer together and more conflict all yeah. in the same in the same yeah. thing. But the children how many few children get to run in nature anymore and be outside? It's just yeah, and my wife and I decided first thing when we first got married that we weren't, we both, we knew we wanted to have a family, but we didn't want to have, we were living in Madison at the time, and uh, we knew we didn't want to raise kids in a, in town. Okay. We wanted to be out, out on the land. So. Was she in school too? Yep. What was she, what was her? Area? Biology. All right. Yeah. Golly. Great thing. All right. So you got out here, started the farm, and... What would you call your farm now? Because you make a living off of it. You do. Yes. You, do you work off the farm? No. Congratulations. That's a tough one to do. Yep. So tell us a little bit about your farm and how it. So yeah, our our main mo- focus is is on raising meat. So we uh, we raise grass fed beef, um, and then we do pastured pork and pastured poultry and lamb, grass fed lamb. So you know we we rotate the animals around the farm in ways to try to mimic um, you know ecosystem processes of the past. All right, so beef, chickens, chickens can follow behind the cows. Yep, and the pigs, and the pigs. pigs yeah. Okay, and the pigs will follow behind the cows. Yeah, it doesn't always work that way. Uh, pigs. If I was in Illinois mm-hmm. and it was perfectly flat, right. that's exactly what I would do. Um, <laughs> pigs dig, and on our steep hills, I don't want any disruption of the sod of the soil on those steep hills because then it rains and I lose all that soil Um, and I want to keep that soil as thin as it is on our hills Mm -hmm. so I don't want to lose any so I keep them on the flats in the bottom in the valleys 
Um, most of our pastures are on pretty steep hillsides. So the cows, the sheep, and the goats, they're up on the steep hillsides, and uh, uh, the pigs are, are in the valley. All right. So when you... Uh, I imagine there's a balance of the number of pigs to the number of cows to the number of chicken for your farm. How does yeah. that work out? Well, our... Um, our main method of selling meat is through a, a CSA, which is really a subscription. It's a monthly subscription. So people um, basically their credit card gets charged every month and they get a, a box that shows up. And so uh, boxes can be customizable. So they're like beef, pork and chicken or just beef and pork or just pork and chicken or whatever. Uh, and so, you know, based on it, it's more of an economic decision, how many pigs I have. Mm -hmm. um, to satisfy our customer base, essentially. All right, we'll take a break here for a second. This is uh, WDRT Radio in Viroqua, Wisconsin. This is Brian Wickert on the program Conversations. And today we're speaking with Peter Allen from Mastodon Farms out near Viola. So Peter, let's continue with your subscription. How many people do you provide meat for? We have about 100 families that we provide their meat. All right. And do they just pay, like a CSA subscription, you pay so much, then you get whatever vegetables are available that week. How does yours work? Um, it's not exactly a CSA. We kind of call it that. And it started out to being more, more like that, where people would pay up front. Um, but now we just do it as a, it's a monthly Thing. So 12 months of the year, they get a box that shows up with meat in it. And um, everybody has their own preferences. You know, some people don't like pork chops. Some people like extra ground beef, whatever it is. Um, and I try to try to give everybody what they want every month. So every month they get a, get a is it frozen? Is yes, it? it's frozen. Yep. So it's frozen. You ship it out. Is it mostly delivered or do you ship it through the mail? Or? Both. Yeah, we, we deliver in uh, Viroqua and uh, Madison and La Crosse, and then we ship all around kind of the upper Midwest. Right. So if they looked up Mastodon Farm, they'd find your... Mastodon Valley Farm, yeah. They'd find your... They'd get information on that. All right, so what has the, been the change in the soil landscape since you took it over 10 years ago? If you give us what it looked like when you got there and then what it looks like today. Yeah, so the the biggest difference is the the areas that were crop fields. Um, so when we, in our original 100 acres, there was only a, um, like a five, six acre crop field and the rest was pasture and woods. It's about half woods. But then a few years after we bought that 100 acres, my, uh, my wife's parents bought the 120 acres next door and Good. that had a 40 acre crop field on it. So in total, we've restored about 45, 46 acres uh, of what was GMO crop field, which is now um, native tall grass prairie. And so um, that's the biggest difference when you have a field that, has, that literally had one species growing in it. And then two years later, it's got you know 90 to 100 species in it. Uh, and of just of plants full of insects and rodents. We've had, um, you know, uh, meadow larks nesting in the tall grass prairie, uh, which we do graze and we do cut for hay. Um, but we do it in a way that allows the, the ground nesting um, grassland birds like the bobolinks and the meadow larks, their nesting window. So we, mm -hmm. we cut our hay late for first crop. When you say tall grass prairie, 
Give me a little more detail. So there's, you know, when you look out anywhere in our area and you see pasture and green grass, those are cool season grasses. It's um, orchard grass, Timothy grass, Kentucky bluegrass. It's called, they're called cool season grasses. Um, it's the C3 photosynthetic pathway. It's the, the okay. original way that plants uh, photosynthesize. Um, so let me go back to the cool. Yep. Does that mean they come up in the spring when it's cold? They, Is that what cool means? They, they prefer cooler growing seasons. So they do really well in the spring uh, and the early summer. They're kind of peak climaxes in June uh, and a little bit into July. They kind of slow down August because it dries out. Their, their roots don't go as deep. They maybe mm -hmm. go down a foot or 18 inches max. Um, uh, and then they'll come back in the fall for a little bump. And that's contrasted with the warm season grasses, which were the what we call the tall grass prairie. And that was the native grasses that were part of the prairie. Uh, that was the native grass of the Midwest. Uh, what would that look like if somebody was driving along and saw tall grass prairie what would, would they see they would the, the grasses are much 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 taller um they can be six feet eight feet tall, uh, That's tall and they can have a lot of flowers i mean there's hundreds and hundreds of species of native species of flowers that grew in the tall grass prairie um and uh they their their peak growth is in july and august so when in the spring you don't even hardly see that they're there and then all of a sudden in um you know, in weeks, in July, they'll grow feet. Uh, and all of a sudden, you'll have very, very, very tall grass. And is that when your animals would be eating them? Well, in that time, that's the time of year that I'm cutting it for hay. Okay. Yeah. And then I, I graze it a little bit in the fall. Um, uh, but it's pr I primarily use it as, our, as a hay field. One cutting? Two. So it grows back. So I, I, being, I still have a lot of... Um, my brain still thinks as a scientist. Uh, and mm -hmm. so I, I set up some experiments when I planted. And so I actually did tall grass prairie, which is no, nobody does that in an agricultural context around here. Nobody. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I interplanted it with alfalfa. Um, and so what the way it works is that I can get a first crop before the, the warm season grass comes up of alfalfa and whatever cool season grasses are in the mix. Um, and then what that does is it opens it up. It basically, it takes all the competition away for sunlight for those warm season grasses, which then explode in the summer. And then I can get a late summer cutting of the prairie. And then that cuts that down. So then now the alfalfa can get sunlight again. And, and then back. it grows back up in the fall. And then I graze that in the fall. So how much haylage, bales, how do you cut it and how do you store it? For your feet. Uh, I just cut it in um, with a hay bine and bale it with a round baler. Um, mm -hmm. It's net wrapped and then it sits outside. I'd love to have a, a shed to put it in, but I haven't gotten around to building you'll, that yet. You'll get that someday. Yeah, that's some, one day. So you cut it. Compared to the people that cut round bales for their dairy farms in here, what's your yield per acre? Could you have a comparison on well, that? Well, it's... Because they it's, talk about second and third cuttings here. First one. Right. And they're putting out, as soon as they take a cutting, they're putting out manure, fertilizer. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why they can get three, four, five, maybe even six cuttings. I mean, wow, they're almost taking, like, it's basically once a month from, you know, May mm -hmm. to, to, or June to October, November. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're not doing that. And, um, but, 
so you we have much less you know tons per acre uh, and the the soil when we started when we took the, the the last soybean crop was taken off and then we planted the prairie the soil was in really really bad shape there was essentially no topsoil left it was compacted sand subsoil are you on the ridge or this the is valley? a valley okay in the yeah. valley. okay and uh so we've I, I never fertilized so i'm just now getting to the to the point where i can start um applying compost that we uh, make on the farm um and i'm, I'm going to be doing that s- this spring for the first time so it's been improving gradually because i've been grazing it so i get some manure um but it's going to improve a lot more in the, in the coming weeks. But even without doing any fertilizing, like last year, I mean, I don't know. I probably got 80 or 90 round bales in two cuttings off mm-hmm. of 30 acres. So not great, but certainly not terrible. Yeah. And so, it's good quality. The, the cows really like it. Well, that's what we were talking about, the soil and the quality of your feed that's come off. Has your soil, did you ever do soil samples when you started? Yes, yeah, everything's was sampled when we started. And then if you had comparisons since then? Okay. I'm excited to do that. <laughs> that would that would be really good to see. Yeah. To see what goes on there. All right, so give me an idea about your rotation around your your thing cuz you've got 40 acres that you I I'm hearing that you graze on and rotate through and the rest is woods. It's well cuz since my uh, parents-in-law bought the the 120 next door, we actually have about 90 to 100 acres of pasture that we graze primarily cattle on, but we're starting to do more and more sheep and goats um, as well. So the grazing we do to the cattle, is it uh, high-intensive, rotational, leaving there for three days, one day, half a day? You know, it's it's variable. I don't have a, a set um, schedule. I kind of try to be really adaptive. So depending on the, the weather, how wet it is, how dry it is, what season it is, what time of year, how the grass is growing, how I grazed in that paddock the year before will determine how I graze this time. Um, and so some paddocks I'll graze for one day. Sometimes I'll graze them for three days. Sometimes I'll skip a paddock. Sometimes I'll change the boundaries. Um, sometimes I'll, you know, have water in one place. Sometimes I'll move it to another place and mineral feeders moving, moving the animal impact around. So I really don't have a set schedule, but it's any paddock, you know, is going to be between, depending on the size and the conditions, anywhere from one to three days. So the... Rotation, you're talking beef cows here. Yes. Okay, the pork is, are they in pens? No, no, no. Well, they're on, on pasture. Um, because and, you said and they're, on, on they're the in hillsides. separate rotations, you know, in fl- on flatter ground. Um, but they have their own rotations and their own paddocks that they go through. Nobody but the pigs go in those paddocks? Um, no, all the animals go in there. Uh, chickens and cows and sheep, goats. But... Um, the pigs don't go anywhere else. You know, they're they're the pig paddocks. But so pigs are really interesting. They 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 don't graze when grass is tall. So once grass gets to be eight inches or higher, they're kind of done grazing. They won't kind of touch it. They'll only graze short grass. So I bring my steers in at least every three to four weeks and hit it pretty hard to mow it down. And then I I also mow, usually mow it with a brush hog a couple times a year to get the thistles and stuff that the cows don't eat. Um, and that makes a huge difference in how much forage. Pigs are tricky because if you give them grain, they'll just eat grain. 
um, that's what they want to eat. So to get them to eat pasture, you kind of you got to ration them, but you also have to maintain the quality that they want to forage, or else they'll just lay down uh, and and not graze. So, <sighs> so uh, pigs are a little trickier that way. What kind? What breed? Uh, I have a whole bunch of different breeds, and we don't we don't breed them ourselves. I get them from other producers. Okay, so you're you don't have a sow herd. You just right. have okay. Yeah, we do have a beef breeding uh, herd, a cow herd. Um, and every, what's what's the beef breed? Uh, Red Devon. Those are so pretty. I love I love them. Yeah, yeah. They're really easy to work with too, aren't they? Yes. Calm. Yeah, I just took three cows in yesterday morning and had big horns. You know, people would be frightened, and I just walked with them and patted them on the side, and they just walked right on. And it was, <laughs> that was low stress, and everyone was happy. How much do they weigh? Live weight yeah. for a, an, uh, an adult cow, she's probably 1,200 pounds. Okay. So fairly small mm-hmm. relative to, say, you know, a big black Angus or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good, good. All right, so let's go. You've, you've raised the pork. You've raised the, the things. How about your sheep and goat? Is there much of a market for those? Um, we, we sell a lot of lamb, so we have no problem selling lamb. Uh, goat, on the other hand, uh, we eat it, my family and I, and I have some friends that will eat it as well, but we haven't gone big into goats. You know, our landscape, like I said, we've got you know over 100 acres of woods, mm-hmm. and in those woods, there's a lot of brush, a lot of multi-floor rows, a lot of prickly ash, a lot of goat food. We could support a lot of goats, and, and our land needs it. Um, goats are trickier than cows and sheep because they're not as hardy. So cows and sheep, I don't have any barns or buildings. I, I hardly have a, a house for myself. So uh, the, the cows are just fine, negative 30 degrees, snow, yeah, blizzard, yeah. they're totally fine. Sheep, we, we raised um, uh, Rambouillet sheep for a long time, uh, big wool. They're like a merino. Um, and they were they couldn't be happier when it was really cold. They were just they the big horns totally too. Totally fine. They had big horns. Yep, and big, really fine wool. But goats, on the other hand, if it's 35 degrees and a little bit rainy and the wind is blowing, they start dropping like flies. They, they need shelter. And it doesn't, they don't need to be indoors by a wood stove, but they do need <laughs> to be able to get out of the wind and stay dry. And so I haven't built that infrastructure yet, so I haven't gone big into goats. So, you know, every year I'll buy 15 or 20, and then I'll target graze them in areas that are the worst brush that I'm trying to, um, you know, clear out a little bit. We've mm-hmm. got some remnant oak savanna with a big open-grown white oak trees. It's got a lot of brush grown up in it that we target with goats. I'd like to be able to, I mean, we, we could support probably 100, 150 nannies, um, with our land base, but uh, I'm going to need some big buildings before I go go big into That's goats. That's a lot of goats. Yes. So the worldwide goat is one of the most. That's right. Popular or highest consumption is that right? Yeah, and and in the Midwest here we have huge markets for goats, both in Minneapolis and Chicago, uh, with Muslim communities um, in particular, and actually we have a. Uh, down in Fenimore, just south of here, they have a small animal uh, sale barn that basically specializes in sheep and goats. And a lot of 
um, buyers from Minneapolis and, and Chicago come there to buy. So prices there are actually really good. It's one of the better um, small ruminant uh, auction places for prices anywhere. And so uh, I know quite a few goat, goat producers that do quite well just selling them at the sale barn. Okay. Beef cows, a thousand pounds or better when you sell it. Pigs, two twenty, two fifty. What's a goat weigh when you, when you sell it? Mm, live weight? Yeah. 90 pounds, 80 okay. pounds. How about sheep? Uh, about the same. Okay. Now there's around here people milk goats yes are these two different types of breeds two different you? types of breeds so tell you us can have cross breads um a lot of the goats that we've bought um were uh coming from goat dairies there's a lot of goat dairies around here so you can get um goat kids you know bucklings in particular mm -hmm. they're not of much value to the dairies so they sell them for real cheap kind um, of like the heifers or the steers that's right that's right bull calves bull calves yeah yeah all right, so with your goats, you take them to a packing house? Slaughterhouse? Uh, not usually. I have before. I have had people that wanted goat, and I took them to slaughter. But um, when we eat them ourselves, you know, we just slaughter them. And uh, otherwise, we would just take them to a sale barn if we had a bunch okay. that we wanted to sell. Yeah. So you don't. So your CSA people aren't asking for. I don't. I don't. I've never put a, a piece of goat meat in our in our oh, CSA. Bummer. Yeah. Maybe I will one day. Maybe I, I might put an email out and see how many people would be interested. It'd be, it'd be an interesting question to ask. It has to have a good recipe. Yes, that's one. That's one thing my wife does really well is providing our customers with new recipes all the time. You know, you know, every once in a while we'll have a month where we'll give everybody like a package of short ribs or something that's not mm -hmm. in their usual. Uh, monthly bundle and then give them a recipe for like our favorite way to prepare those cuts. Usually those are like my favorite cuts, the <laughs> unusual ones. All right. So do you do any uh, supplementation? You mentioned mineral blocks and stuff. So what, what feed do you have to buy off farm? What's the expense there? Um, well, for, you know, say chickens, they're eating 80 to 90% of their diet is coming out of a feed bag it's grain okay. um the pigs you know it, most pork that you've ever eaten before is a hundred percent grain i mean right. they, they eat a hundred percent grain i have in my on my best batches i can get them down to you know 60 percent grain we're getting 40 percent of their calories are coming off of the land um, that's about as max as I've seen. You can, there are breeds that graze better. And I do know some homesteaders that have like grain free pigs, but they're really small and it takes a long, long time. So we try to find a balance, like the economics of that don't work for, uh, I can't feed a hundred families pigs that are tiny. Um, I mean, I need a lot of meat. So mm -hmm. we try to balance the economics by having heritage breeds that are still eating grain, but we're getting them, we're trying to push close to half of their diet from the land. So heritage breeds, give me some names. Um, so that would be, uh, we, there's a lot of uh, Berkshire and Red Wattle, uh, Gloucester Old Spot, um, uh, Large Black, those types of breeds. Okay. Mangalitsa, Hereford, we've done a whole bunch of. Hereford's got the foot, right? Uh, that's the mule foot. Okay. Yeah. That's a different one than the Hereford. Mm -hmm. Hereford's white and red? That's right. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. And then uh, and then the cows, there's essentially the 100%. You know, the cows is sheep and goats is 100% off the land. We don't feed them any grain. Um, we just supplement with salt and kelp. Yeah, they love that kelp. Yes. Yep. All right. So is there much difference in the meat of the pigs compared to the grain stuff we get in the stores? Well, very, very different. Yeah, you in can even, well, the color there, it's pig is not, pig meat isn't white. <laughs> what? It's actually a red meat. When no. You, when you look at pork chops or I was just packing meat this morning and putting in pork chops and they're big red, red meat. I mean, not as red as, you know, a, a big beef roast, but uh, much, they're, they're not white, uh, which is interesting that that was like the marketing slogan the other white meat trying to compare it to chicken back in the day um <laughs> but that's only when they don't go outside <laughs> so what about diseases we don't have problems with that oh come on really no diseases no i mean we did have i bought some uh steers once from an amish guy who was they were grass-fed but they hadn't been rotated and they all had lungworm and they gave lungworm to my whole herd and I gave them ivermectin, and it went away, and I've never had a problem since then. So what's um, a lungworm? It's a worm that gets in their lungs and causes them <laughs> respiratory distress. Mucus yeah. and coughing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you gave them ivermectin. Did you just pick the sweet nanny and feed it to them, or did you get the ivermectin from the vet? It's, uh, no, you just get it from the feed store, um, and it's a, it's a pour-on product. You actually pour it on their backs. And it goes in through their skin. Um, hmm. That's the that's the conventional way of and you know conventional cattle get dewormed that with that product two three times a year every year. That's I've only done my cows once. Um, they they probably didn't get COVID then. No, I think they were pretty safe. <laughs> pretty safe from COVID. They I mean, had the if prophylactic. You gave, if you gave them ivermectin, the one the one downside of ivermectin is it um, disrupts uh, dung beetle uh, breeding. It doesn't kill them, but it disrupts their ability to to reproduce. So we uh, did have about a month where the the cow patties weren't disintegrating in the field as rapidly as normal. All right, so. We're going to take a break here and come back and ask about the dung beetle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is Brian Wickard on WDRT Radio, Community Radio in Viroqua, Wisconsin, on the program Conversations. And today I'm speaking with Peter Allen at Mastodon Valley Farm about his oak savanna pasture-raised animals and meat. So back to this dung beetle. I think they're fascinating. So tell us a little bit about what they do and how quick they get into the manure and stuff, and what they do for the, for the fertility. Yeah, so dung beetles are really cool. And I did have the opportunity to, to visit um, Africa uh, and tour around a bit and see real dung beetles. I mean, like the, the eating elephant poop. I mean, they're the size of your fist. Okay, I mean, they're, they're thank huge. you. Huge. We're on the radio. You're you're showing me. It's, yeah, it's the size of your yeah, fist. A dung yeah, beetle. They're okay. big. Uh, and we have these tiny little ones. They're like the only ones that can grow this far north. I mean, they're teeny tiny. But uh, not too long after a cow does its business, you'll find them in there, and they're burying little holes. You'll see these classic. Um, holes. They're like almost look, make it look like honeycomb, mm -hmm. uh, pockmarked with all these <clears throat> holes. And the dung beetles, you know, they, they dig little holes in the ground, they lay their eggs, and then they dig up little, um, they roll up little round balls of poo and then stuff them down the holes. And uh, 
it, it aids in um, uh, speeding up nutrient cycling. So it's moving the nutrients from the, from the excrement into the ground, into the soil, uh, just that much faster. You know, you see a lot of pastures and you see these, you know, dark green circles yes. all over mm -hmm. the pasture. And that's primarily a symptom when, when the animals aren't rotated, you know, and they're in the same place over time, they're getting these conventional wormers all the time. So their, their poop is kind of toxic. Uh, the insects don't like them. And so they, do, they just sit there um, and they go rank and they make the grass rank and then they're full of parasites. So the cows don't want to eat them. Uh, so the nutrient cycling gets stunted in that, in that context. But when you've got a more natural system, those nutrients are cycled really rapidly. I mean, cow poops disappear really fast in the middle of the summer um, because there's so many things, there's so many active, you know, then the birds come and they're picking at the insects in there, the flies come and lay their eggs, and then the birds come and they're picking at the, the larvae, the, uh, the fly larvae in there mm -hmm. and, and spreading it out. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's no cow pie anymore. So when they, the dung beetle makes that little round from their excrement, yeah. that's kind of similar to what the earthworms do when they excrete out and they, they say it's really good for plants? Um, yeah, you could, you could think of it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's somebody else in the in the worms earthworms case. It's it's their excrement, right? Versus the dung beetles, which is taking the cow's excrement and moving it around. But it's a similar. Oh, because they don't digest it; they just roll it up and move that's it right. around. Yeah, okay. And it's it's food for the the hatched eggs. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the ecosystem that you create with all this diversity. You talked about the birds earlier. Yep. And. Can you talk a little bit about this relationship and the complementary between all these insects and birds and animals? Yeah, I mean, there's at some level my so you got to remember most of us. I haven't been down this road as long as you have, so you know. Well, I guess my point is that um, at one level, I don't have to know all of that stuff. I have to create the context for that to flourish. Mm -hmm. um, and I, personally, I'm interested in, in observing and learning and seeing, you know, watching how the woodpeckers come and if there's a, um, you know, an old maple tree that fell and then all of a sudden it's covered in woodpeckers and it's just full of insects. And, you know, there's all kinds of um, ecological interactions happening all around us all the time. You watch the bees pollinating the the, we're probably a week or two weeks away from the willow starting to willow tree starting to flower, mm -hmm. and then we'll get the the native bees all coming in to to, to pollinate. And um, but I think of my job as um, in ecology, we have this concept called keystone species. Okay, and explain that. That's yeah. the idea that in any given ecosystem, there are going to be certain species that whose impacts are disproportionate to the to the functioning of that ecosystem so that if you were to remove them, it would fundamentally change the character of the ecosystem. So, you know, if you remove um, wolves, then the deer can overpopulate and strip out the vegetation and then the deer population collapses uh, and then you don't have de over, deer or wolves anymore. Um, several years or three, four years with the, so the wolves are gone, deer population explodes, Deers get sick because there's too many of them. 
and they die down. Is that yeah, what? or they, they, they eat all the plants, and then there's oh. no food left, and they all die of starvation. That's what, that was the classic story. Aldo Leopold, when he was down in uh, New Mexico uh, working for the Forest Service, and they were wanting to, to enhance deer habitat, so they went around shooting all the wolves. Uh, and the deer population exploded and they ate all the plants because this is in the semi-arid. I mean, this is a very fragile ecosystem mm -hmm. and all those plants are gone. Now all the deer starve and there's no deer um, versus, say, removing, you know, one of the insects, which would have all kinds of knock-on effects in the ecosystem, but it wouldn't fundamentally change the, the nature of the mm -hmm. ecosystem, the, the way it's the, the structure of it. But the keystone would be like the wolf. Right. The keystone would be like the wolf or, um, you know. In, in your uh, situation, your, your cows? Well, in our situation, I'm saying that the humans are the keystone because before, you know, it was the Native Americans that were a keystone uh -huh. with, the with the oak savannas. Before Native Americans were here, it was the mastodon that was the keystone species uh, for 20 million years, mm -hmm. uh, if you believe the fossil records. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, um, and now we ha we don't have those. We don't have we don't have we, we can't burn like the Native Americans burn. We have too many houses and burn we have property lines. We just like <laughs> that's not an option anymore. And so uh, the only option, if we want to restore the land, is for human beings to take responsibility as that keystone species and, and act like it. And so one thing a lot of when I when I have these kind of conversations with people, one thing I hear a lot is like, well, I don't have 100 acres like I can't be a keystone species. And I say, well, yeah, you can you eat three meals a day <laughs> and every single meal that you eat determines what is happening on the land every single meal. So if you add up every meal that you eat in your life, you are actually have influence over many, 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 many acres. Wow. Responsibility. People don't want that. <laughs> it makes life a little harder. Well, your your observation skills are incredible uh, because you every year I noticed earlier you're talking about we don't do it the same way every 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 yes. year. And in conventional agricultural, they're trying to put everything in a box so it's always the same and always the same. Yes. And working with nature, we know that that doesn't. That's that's one of the biggest paradigm shifts um, for people working with the land that want to, to be more regenerative is learning how to observe and be adaptive. Uh, one of, I do a lot of consulting and people really desperately want recipes. They want to be told exactly what to do. It's like, okay, well just give me a bullet point list of things that I need to do and I'll go do them and then I'll have done my job. I'll have, I'll have restored the land. It's like, well, it doesn't actually work that way because we don't know next year if we're going to have a flood or a drought. and and. If you're just doing the same thing regardless, you're not going to have the same kind of impacts. And so, you know, we need a lot more ecological education. I mean, at all levels, this is one of the things I think about a lot, especially with having kids and we homeschool our kids. It's, it's like I don't even know if it's possible to teach the current generations the kind of knowledge. It's like it's going to take a generation. Like we, I mean, I, I think a lot about focusing on the next generation of like getting that ecological knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, into the, the upcoming generation um, because we, we need it. Well, I grew up in Indiana and 50% of the people I went to school with came off a farm mm -hmm. or were connected to a farm. Yeah. And by the time my nephews and nieces went through the same school system... Fraction. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, I think they'd have a handful of farmers in their class and yeah. that'd be it. Yeah. And so those children had no experiences... 
growing things, watching them grow, watching yeah. them change, and then they make decisions having never grown anything. And I think they make really imbalanced decisions because it's all something they read and had observed or yeah. experienced. Yeah. So your children, you know, when they come and they, they have a whole different appreciation of what happens in nature yeah. than somebody in the city that goes to the park. Right. And they go, yeah, we went to the park and played on the, yeah. the jungle gym. That's true, but that be, that also being said, there's a lot you can learn in a park. I mean, that's the one nice thing about nature is that it's kind of everywhere. It, it asserts itself, even in the most unlikely situations. You know, dandelions coming up in a crack in the pavement in the Bronx, right? Mm-hmm. Um, birds everywhere. You can't f- go somewhere that doesn't have birds, and you can find and you can observe the birds mating. You can f- observe the birds having their, you know, raising their young. I mean, there's 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 ecology to be learned everywhere, even in even in urban situations. If you know how to look. If you know how to look. Most people don't know how. I mean, that would be a class in itself, how to observe nature. The, the issue is you can't, the, the thing that is the most disruptive of the ability to observe are screens. Are what? Screens. Oh. Yeah. Cell phones. That's the number one thing. It pulls, you, it pulls your consciousness away from the world around you and into somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So, if somebody were listening to us and thinking, "Gosh, I'd like to learn more about this," what would be some of the books, courses, YouTube people? So, who would be, if you're going to give them a syllabus on what to get started to observe nature and and be more in touch? But what would be some of the things that you've experienced and helped you, and then th- ones that you think would help other people? Um. You know, Aldo Leopold is great. His essays are amazing. You can learn a lot from Aldo Leopold. Um, you know, Santa County Almanac is, but there's a bunch of other collections of his essays out there. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin Wall Kimmer, um, Braiding Sweetgrass, Gathering Moss. She's written a bunch of excellent books. She actually got her PhD in the same lab as me at UW-Madison, and she did her PhD actually out here uh, looking at bryophytes on the and the rocks on the Kickapoo River. What so, are bryophytes? Um, like uh, mosses, kinds okay. of mosses. mosses. And um, what's her name again? Robin Kimmer. She's uh, Native American. K-I-M-M-E-R? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. She has excellent, excellent ecological writing. Um, for basic ecology, uh, there's a book called Holistic Management by Alan Savory. Mm-hmm. It's just an, an excellent, it's it's not an academic work, but it's it, it does... A better job than most academic works in explaining just you know the fundamentals of the carbon cycle, the water cycle, energy cycles, nutrients, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've, I'm familiar with uh, Alan Savory, holistic management. Uh, what about yours stuff? Do you have any YouTube? Because unfortunately, no, let me phrase this: there's my prejudice. Uh, many people go to the YouTube and yeah. not books anymore. So, yeah. what would be some of the places to search? Um, and I know you see it pulls it in. And we already talked about yeah, stuff. Yeah, the yeah. best thing. Yeah, I, I, I haven't, I haven't consumed much YouTube in this space, so okay. I, I, don't, I don't actually That's have. Fine. But we do. I do teach courses, and we have online courses that we do as well. So I mean, that would be an option. So how as well. would they find those? Uh, you could find it by our website, MacedonValleyFarm.com, or Macedon Valley Farm School is the name of the website for our uh, mm-hmm. courses. Are you going to do any classes and things for children, do you think, as your children grow? Uh, I would like to, yeah. No, nothing exactly in the plans right now, but they're still pretty young. 
Well, yeah, but I'm thinking all the other, when they get of age, having all the other people come out and see exactly what's, yeah. what's going on. They'll be teaching the classes. <laughs> They'll be living the classes. <laughs> That's right. All right, so we're about end of the hour here. It's going by really quick. I really enjoyed speaking with you and the stuff I've learned. Is there anything that you'd like to talk about as far as, you know, things for people to just pieces of wisdom to take away? Um, I mean, I think, you know, every, everybody I'm sure listening is pretty aware of the, the dire ecological situation we're in. And I think, you know, the thing I was saying earlier about three meals a day is a very hopeful um, point because we all have the power to make a difference three times a day. And so I just want to encourage people to, uh, you know, think about where their food comes from and especially like get it from a farmer. I mean, directly from a farmer. It doesn't have to be me. Um, there's lots of good farmers, especially in this area. Um, but the more food you can buy directly from a farmer, I mean, the co-op is great too, but like the more food you can buy directly from a farmer, the better, you, you know, the quality of the food's going to be and the, the better you're supporting the local economy and the better you're supporting the ability of farmers as landscape managers to do the right thing on the land, which in our environment, the best things we can be doing is, um, uh, managing livestock. I mean, the, our landscapes need livestock. They're begging. All of our plants are begging for livestock. They all evolved for millions and millions of years being browsed, being grazed. They, they need grazing to be healthy. The soils need the animals. And so uh, the more we can get the animals out on the landscape, um, the, the better the landscape will be. You're continuing like a college. You were going against the grain, and right now there's so much out there that says, oh, the cows are the problem. What do you, what do you say, a quick, you know, elevator? A quick, there's, there's a very easy thing to say about that, is that we had more animals on planet Earth uh, during the Pleistocene, so that was before the, the current epoch we're mm -hmm. in. So for the last three million years, we had uh, mastodons, giant ground sloths, Mm -hmm. giant bison they're twice the size of the bison we know of I mean, massive animals and huge huge numbers of them mm -hmm. they're all burping and farting the whole time and <laughs> and what happened during that time that was the ice age cold that was the ice age global warming didn't happen when we had <laughs> you know literally twice as much animal biomass on the landscape as we do today i mean if mm -hmm. you add up all the cows and feedlots and the pigs and feedlots and the chickens and houses we had way more animals than that on the landscape and it brought us into an ice age <laughs> all right we have to end there thank you very much peter for coming in today again this is wdrt radio on community radio in Verroqua, wisconsin this is the program conversations and this is brian wickert thank you very much peter for coming in today no problem a lot of fun yep bye bye